If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com. for hanging in there during the break. It was definitely much needed and allowed me to get ahead on episodes and deal with some things in my personal life. If you've been following the show for a while, you might know that I have a full-time job outside of the show, and while I was on break, I started an entirely new job. So luckily, the podcast break coincided with the end date at my previous job, so it was a smooth transition and much smoother than trying to start a new job and release episodes at the same time. I'll be taking another break later this year and we'll announce the dates when they get closer. Next, I'll be in Manchester and London for the Generation Y They Walk Among Us meetups in early July. From the date of this recording, it's about a month away, so I'm extremely excited. Tickets, as I understand it, are sold out, and if you're planning on being there, let me know so I can say hi. Then I will be at the True Crime Podcast Festival on July 13th in Chicago. There's going to be a ton of podcasters there, and tickets are still available, so check out the website tcpf2019.com for more information. And with that, let's get into the episode. In the early morning hours of August 19, 1989, Mark McPhail was responding to a disturbance in the parking lot of a restaurant where he was working as a security guard. He came across an altercation involving three men. One man had just pistol-whipped another with a handgun, and as Mark approached to try and stop, the assailant turned and fired his gun, hitting Mark multiple times. Mark dropped to the ground, and two of the men fled from the scene. The caller who reported the crime to 911 said that they saw multiple people running from the scene, but were unable to identify them. The man who was assaulted was also unable to identify who hit him with the gun. Mark was transported to the hospital, where he was later pronounced dead. 
The short but irreparably tragic altercation set off a chain of events that spanned over 20 years and ended with the execution of a man whose innocence is still debated today. Troy Davis was born on October 9, 1968, and was raised in Savannah, Georgia. He was the oldest of five children, and his father was a veteran of the Korean War, and his mother worked in a local hospital. He was raised in Cloverdale, which was a middle-class, predominantly black neighborhood in Savannah. He dropped out of high school in the 11th grade, but he did complete his GED in 1987. It was reported that he dropped out so he could help care for his disabled younger sister. Both in school and in work, Troy was described as likable but lacked discipline and sometimes had spotty attendance. Troy did have contact with law enforcement prior to August 1989. A year earlier in 1988, he pled guilty to carrying a concealed weapon. As part of his plea deal, he was fined $250, but avoided harsher punishment. The events of this story began on the afternoon of August 18, 1989. Troy attended a pool party in Cloverdale, and during the party there was a shooting where one person was injured and hospitalized. Police were called to the scene and informed by witnesses that the shooter was a tall, young, African-American male in a white t-shirt and a hat. Once the police were called, the party broke up. Troy and his friend, Daryl Collins, went to a nearby pool hall and stayed until after midnight. What happens next is partially in dispute, but up to a certain point, the events are undisputed. Just after 1 a.m. on August 19th, Troy and his friend Daryl were in the parking lot of the Burger King near the pool hall when they came across a man named Red Cole who was harassing a homeless man named Larry Young. Larry had been in the parking lot drinking beer, and Red asked him for a beer, and Larry declined. In response, Red assaulted him and attempted to take the beer from him. Here's where the actual events are in dispute. At some point, Troy and Daryl joined the scuffle between Red and Larry. It is believed that they were either trying to help Red take Larry's beer or trying to de-escalate a situation that was quickly getting out of control. The situation escalated, and Larry was pistol-whipped over the head by one of the men, but unable to identify who hit him. It was at this point that Daryl began to walk away from the situation. The security guard, Mark McPhail, went to investigate the source of commotion. 27-year-old Mark was a Savannah police officer who had taken a second job as a security guard. As Mark approached to break up the fight, someone, presumably the person who pistol-whipped Larry, turned and fired the gun at Mark. Mark was hit multiple times and dropped to the ground. Two men were seen by eyewitnesses running from the parking lot. These eyewitnesses placed a call to 911. They indicated that the men who fled the scene were black and one was wearing a white shirt, but could not identify them further than that. The 911 caller also said that the assailant fired their gun at Mark again after he was already injured and on the ground. The shots were fatal and Mark was pronounced dead. He was taken by surprise and didn't even have time to draw his weapon. 
The shell casings left behind at the scene were later determined to be from a 38 caliber weapon. Not only had he been a member of the Savannah Police Department for three years, Mark had been an army ranger for six years before joining the police force. He was married to his wife, Joan, and they had two young children together, a toddler and an infant who was only a few weeks old when Mark was murdered. Mark's funeral was held just days later and was attended by hundreds of people and a large number of law enforcement turned out in support of the McPhail family. Despite eyewitnesses to the murder, no one was able to identify any of the men involved, so the police had no leads to go on. That changed when Red went to the police later that day and told them that he was involved with the altercation with Larry. Red continued on to implicate Troy as the shooter. What Red failed to mention during his statement was that he owned a 38 caliber weapon, the same caliber weapon that fired the bullets that killed Mark. Going on Red's story, the Savannah police focused the investigation on tracking down Troy. By this time, Troy had left Savannah the same day of the shooting and traveled three and a half hours away to Atlanta. Savannah police raided Troy's house on August 20th, but found no useful evidence. As law enforcement continued to hunt for Troy, a large police presence had descended on Cloverdale. There were reports of police roughing up known associates of Troy in an attempt to locate him. Realizing that Troy was the prime suspect in the murder investigation of a police officer, his family told law enforcement that they wanted to negotiate a peaceful surrender. Troy's family firmly believed in his innocence and that the massive police investigation targeting Troy was a misunderstanding. Troy's mother and sister went to Atlanta and brought him back to Savannah and met with police at a predetermined location. Troy was then arrested and charged with Mark McPhail's murder. So far, the only evidence against Troy was Red's story that implicated him as the killer. Despite the bullets being identified as coming from a 38 caliber weapon, the gun was never located. The eyewitnesses who called 911 identified the shooter as a black man wearing a white shirt, but that evidence was too vague to be particularly useful. After Mark's murder, it was determined that Troy was also at the party on August 18th that ended in the shooting. Until now, the police had no leads on suspects in that shooting either, but they did have eyewitnesses who identified the shooter as a young black male. Police drew conclusions between the shooting at the party and Mark's murder, and Troy became the prime suspect in the party shooting as well. There was some initial delay within the court system, but on January 16, 1990, four months after Mark's murder, the state formally charged Troy. He was charged for the murder of Mark McPhail, two counts of assault, one for the assault of Larry Clark in the Burger King parking lot, and one for the individual who was hit by gunfire at the pool party, and he was also charged with one count of possession of a firearm during the commission of a crime. The prosecution formally requested the death penalty on that same day. 
How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. It varies by state, but when the death penalty is being sought in a criminal case, there are additional court procedures that need to take place, which can significantly drag out the pretrial phase as well as the sentencing phase. Troy Davis pled not guilty on October 30, 1990, but due to several hearings, the trial did not begin for over a year. Police had seized clothing from Troy's home that matched the clothing that witnesses saw the shooter wearing at the scene of the crime. Prosecutors hoped that this would be enough to solidify Troy as the suspect, but a judge suppressed the finding at an evidentiary hearing and ruled that it was seized illegally. Troy's mother was there when the police came to search the home. They did not have a warrant, but they threatened to break down the front door unless she let them inside. This ruling was appealed to the Supreme Court of Georgia, who upheld the original decision suppressing the evidence in May of 1991. Despite the setback for the prosecution, the trial moved forward and was set to begin in August of 1991, two years after the murder. Because the gun that fired the bullets at the party and at the murder scene were never found, both the defense and the prosecution relied heavily on eyewitness testimony to try and paint a picture of the events that took place. Red was the key witness for the prosecution. He claimed that he was the one that instigated the altercation with Larry. He said that he wanted some of Larry's beer and Larry had told him no, so he picked a fight with him. Red went on to testify that Troy was the one who pistol-whipped Larry. Red said that this is what alerted Mark to the commotion, and Mark called out to them to stop. Red went on to lay out his version of the disputed events of Mark's murder. He said when Mark called out for the men to stop their attack on Larry, they both ran and Mark gave chase. Red said he stopped running, but Troy continued running and Mark followed him. Then, Red said he heard gunshots. He said in his statement that he did not actually see Troy shoot Mark, he only heard gunshots. The prosecution put several attendees of the pool party on the stand, including the person who was shot, 
and some of them testified that Troy was the shooter that afternoon. The man who was injured said that he knew Troy and he was not his friend, but they never had a negative interaction that would rise to the level of violence. He said he was not sure who shot him that day. Two other eyewitnesses who attended the party identified Troy as the shooter, but on cross-examination, it was determined that they did not actually see the shooter and could not make an identification. One of these eyewitnesses was Troy's friend Daryl, who was present for the altercation with Larry in the Burger King parking lot. He testified that he told the police he saw Troy shoot the gun at the pool party and that Troy had a gun on him later when they went to the pool hall. When he was cross-examined, Daryl said that the police told him to identify Troy and help with their investigation or else he would go to prison on unrelated pending charges. Eyewitnesses to the murder, including the 911 caller, also took the stand and several identified Troy as the assailant in the parking lot. No one actually identified Troy at the scene, though. Any positive identification the prosecution brought forward was made after the police spoke with Red and centered their investigation on Troy. Despite the eyewitness testimony, the prosecution was unable to produce physical evidence that tied anyone to the crime. Although shell casings at both scenes were from a 38, ballistics were unable to conclusively prove that they came from the same weapon. The only way to perform a comprehensive test would be to find the gun. The defense then laid out their version of the events, and they also relied heavily on eyewitness testimony to dispute the prosecution's theory. Troy Davis took the stand in his defense. It is sometimes unusual for defendants to take the stand in their own defense because they can be cross-examined by the prosecution. Troy went on to tell his version of the events that took place on August 18th and 19th. He said that he went to the party on the afternoon of the 18th. He heard the shooting, but he did not see where the shots came from or who was shooting. Then he and Daryl went to the pool hall, and as they were leaving, they saw an altercation taking place between Red and Larry in the parking lot. Troy claimed he tried to intervene on behalf of Larry and tried to break up the fight. Then Red hit Larry with the pistol, and Troy felt that he couldn't help the situation, so he turned to leave the parking lot and head back to the pool hall. With his back turned, he said that he heard Mark say hold it, and then he heard a gunshot. Troy started to run because he was thinking that Red was shooting at him for intervening with Larry. Troy said he heard one more shot, then Red ran past him. Troy said that he then decided to head back to the pool hall, and then he went home, and then he left for Atlanta later that day. In Troy's version of the events, he is already in the process of leaving the scene before Mark is shot. He also does not see it happen, as he had his back turned and was running away. Red testified for the prosecution, so he was also cross-examined by the defense. On cross-examination, Red admitted under oath that he owned a 38 caliber weapon at the time of the shooting. He said he gave it to a friend on the day of Mark's murder and the police never tracked it down for testing. The case went to the jury for deliberation on August 28th, just six days after opening statements. 
The jury found Troy Davis guilty on all charges after just two hours of deliberation. Since this was a death penalty case, the next phase was the sentencing phase, and Troy was allowed to address the jury before the sentence deliberation. He asked the jury to spare his life and to give him a second chance. He also said that he had been found guilty for a crime that he did not commit. Several of his family members also testified on his behalf and pleaded for his life to be spared. The McPhail family was not allowed to testify at sentencing. The jury deliberated for an additional seven hours before affirming the prosecutor's request for the death penalty on August 30th, 1991. Troy's lawyers filed a motion for a new trial within a month of the verdict. The motion was upheld and appealed all the way to the Georgia Supreme Court, who sided with the prosecution in 1993. Troy's lawyers attempted to appeal to the Supreme Court of the United States, but they refused to hear the case. Although the motion for a new trial was denied due to the death sentence, there were nearly a decade of appeals to get through before an execution date could be set. And this was just the beginning of a long road of court dates and hearings that took an emotional toll on both the Davis and the McPhail families. In December of 2001, 10 years after the original sentence was handed down, Troy and his lawyers filed a habeas corpus petition in the United States Federal Court. Over the last five years, seven of the nine key witnesses that the prosecution used to place Troy at the scene recanted their testimony. One witness, who was unable to identify Troy at the time of the crime, but positively identified him after speaking with the police, said she was worried that if she didn't go along with what the police said, that it would cause issues with the pending charges she had against her on an unrelated shoplifting case. Others signed affidavits saying that their testimony was the result of police pressure and influence. Daryl reaffirmed that he was threatened into implicating Troy by police who said that they would put him in prison if he did not cooperate. Larry Young, the man who was attacked in the parking lot, picked Troy's photo out of a lineup and signed a statement from the police saying that Troy was the one who pistol whipped him. But later, when he saw Red at the police station, Larry told the officers that he thought Red might have been the one who actually assaulted him. Furthermore, it was later discovered that Larry was unable to read and therefore unable to write a statement implicating Troy at the time of the crime. Larry said that he signed the statement the police had given him without knowing what it said. When it was read out loud to him, Larry said that the details were incorrect and he was still not sure who actually pistol-whipped him. One person who did not recant their testimony was Red. He maintained that his story was true even after three people went on record saying that Red confessed to them that he was the one that actually pulled the trigger that night. The habeas corpus petition was denied in 2004. The judge ruled that none of the points that Troy and his lawyers raised proved that there was a danger of a miscarriage of justice at trial. This decision was appealed to the 11th Circuit Court, and they upheld the previous decision. 
They told Troy and his lawyers that they needed to see some solid evidence that either the trial was unfair or that Troy did not commit these crimes. The decision was upheld again in December of 2006. It was eyewitness testimony that helped convict Troy at trial. When some of these same eyewitnesses recanted their testimony, they were not considered by the court to be credible witnesses. Since they were not deemed credible, the courts ruled that recanting their statements was not enough to get Troy a new trial. With no other proof of Troy's innocence, his death sentence was able to move forward. On June 25, 2007, it was announced that Troy Davis was scheduled to be executed in just three weeks on July 17th. Once the execution date was set, the case began to receive a large amount of attention in the media. Human rights groups and high-profile people like the Pope and Sister Helen Prejean and various actors spoke out publicly that they believed that the execution needed to be halted, pending a review of the recanted testimonies. As July 17th drew closer, more people began to publicly speak out against the execution, including politicians as well as leaders of other countries. John Lewis, a U.S. congressman representing the state of Georgia, made a statement to the Georgia State Board of Pardons and Paroles on behalf of Troy. He urged them to consider the doubt that had been cast on Troy's guilt and suggested that Red, the prosecution's star witness, could be the one actually responsible for Mark's murder. Red still had not recanted his testimony. However, based on his recounting of the events, if Troy didn't shoot Mark, Red was the only other person there. People who believed Red was responsible believed that he would not recant his testimony because he had all the incentive in the world to keep the blame off of himself. On July 16th, the day before the planned execution, the Georgia State Board of Pardons and Paroles heard nine and a half hours of testimony on Troy's behalf. Less than 24 hours before the scheduled execution was to take place, the state board granted a 90-day stay of execution. The 90 days were to be used to evaluate the recanted testimony evidence. A month after the ruling, the state of Georgia ruled again and implemented a stay of execution pending the outcome of a motion for a new trial. On March 17, 2008, the state of Georgia narrowly rejected the motion for a new trial in a 4-3 ruling. This ruling allowed a new execution date to be set, and it was scheduled for September 23, 2008. The execution date was set, but at the same time, Troy's legal team had filed for his case to be presented before the Supreme Court of the United States. The Supreme Court of Georgia and the Board of Pardons and Paroles both declined to stay the execution or grant clemency. With two hours to go before the execution, the U.S. Supreme Court issued an emergency stay. Since they had not ruled on whether or not they would hear Troy's case, the execution could not proceed as planned. The U.S. Supreme Court made their ruling on October 14, 2008 where they declined to hear Troy's case and returned it back to the state of Georgia. Then a third execution date was scheduled for October 27, 2008. 
With the third date set, the case had received considerable media coverage. Most of the public support was in favor of Troy, and petitions and protests were held to have his death sentence commuted to life in prison. His supporters felt that if they could commute the sentence to life in prison, they could continue to fight for his innocence without the constant looming execution dates. A week before the scheduled execution, another stay was granted by the 11th Circuit Court. Nearly a year later, in August of 2009, the U.S. Supreme Court ordered that Georgia had to grant Troy a new hearing. In this hearing, Troy's legal team was told that they needed to prove that he was innocent. This goes a step farther than just having to cast reasonable doubt of his guilt. This was nearly an impossible feat because so much of the original trial and conviction depended on eyewitness testimony. There was no physical evidence available that could exclude Troy as the perpetrator, but there was also no physical evidence that proved that he did it either. Since the murder happened 20 years previously, no new evidence was going to be discovered. Essentially, Troy's legal team's hands were tied. In this hearing, it was ruled again that the witnesses recanting their testimony were not credible. Police officers then testified at the hearing to the validity of the eyewitnesses' original testimony. Essentially, what the eyewitnesses testified to at trial was considered to be valid, and their later retractions were not. No evidence that suggested that Red was the actual killer was considered. This ruling happened in 2010 and was upheld by the courts in March of 2011. With the ruling upheld, a fourth execution date was able to be scheduled. In early September of 2011, it was announced that Troy Davis would be put to death on September 21st at 7 p.m. In the weeks leading up to the execution, the case once again received significant media coverage, with more people than ever calling for Troy's sentence to be commuted. On September 19th, the Board of Paroles and Pardons heard one final bid for clemency. They even heard from one of the three original jurors who since the trial had come forward to say that if they had all of the information around the circumstances of the recanted testimonies available to them, they would not have voted guilty. This juror traveled all the way to the hearing so they could tell the board their statement in person. The next day, the Board of Pardons and Paroles denied the request for clemency. On the morning of September 21st, Troy's legal team was filing motions for a last-minute stay of execution. The county superior court denied his stay request. It was appealed to the state Supreme Court, who upheld the ruling. Then it was appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court. The scheduled execution time came and went before the U.S. Supreme Court had ruled on whether or not they would hear the appeal request. They announced that they would hear the request and deliberated for a couple of hours before ultimately denying the request for the stay of execution. Many people called on the Obama administration to intervene. A presidential pardon would not have covered the state-level crime that Troy had been convicted of, but he was able to order a federal investigation that, if enacted, would automatically halt the execution from moving forward as planned. 
That night, the White House released a statement saying that President Obama would not be intervening in the case. With all of the appeal options exhausted and no hope of presidential intervention, the execution was clear to proceed as planned. Troy Davis said his final goodbyes to his family and was served his last meal. He opted to eat what was served to the rest of the prison in the cafeteria that day. Then he was brought to the execution chamber. Mark McPhail's son, who was an infant when his father died, was now in his 20s, and he was present to represent his family during the execution. Troy was permitted to make one final statement. He said, Well, first, I'd like to address the McPhail family. I'd like to let you know, despite the situation, I know all of you are still convinced that I am the person that killed your father, your son, and your brother, but I am innocent. The incident that happened that night was not my fault. I did not have a gun that night. I did not shoot your family member, but I am so sorry for your loss. I really am, sincerely. All I can ask is that each of you look deeper into this case so that you really finally see the truth. I ask my family and friends that you all continue to pray and that you continue to forgive. Continue to fight this fight. For those who are about to take my life, may God have mercy on all of your souls. God bless you all. In his final statement, he once again reaffirmed his innocence, just as he had done since he was first arrested in 1989. The execution by lethal injection began at 10.53 p.m., nearly four hours after the originally scheduled time. Troy Davis was declared dead 15 minutes later at 11.08 p.m. In the hours leading up to and after Troy's execution, it was tweeted about so many times that it ended up being the second most tweeted news event of 2011. Troy and his family maintained throughout the lengthy legal process that he was innocent. His supporters said that going through with this execution would be state-sanctioned murder since he was not guilty of this crime. They blamed a broken criminal justice system unfairly punishing a black man for the murder of a white police officer, people of color being unfairly treated within the criminal justice system is something that the United States has far too many examples of. Troy's death sentence was even able to rally less political people to his side based on the outrage many people felt over the flimsy evidence against him and the state's unwillingness to reconsider new evidence. In the aftermath of the execution, people who rallied in hopes to spare Troy's life were forced to redirect their efforts into abolishing the death penalty. Amnesty International, who were very outspoken against the execution, released a statement that they believed Troy's case will be used as an example to illustrate why we need a nationwide ban on the death penalty. Also, in the wake of the execution, there was a renewed push for legislation that banned capital punishment in convictions that relied solely on eyewitness testimony. Not everyone agreed that Troy was innocent and wrongfully executed. One of the prosecutors that helped convict Troy in 1989 made a statement saying that the case should not be a catalyst to debate the validity of capital punishment. He said, Whether you are for or against the death penalty case is irrelevant in this case. 
You shouldn't be making Troy Davis into a vehicle for you to distort the truth, and that's what I think is going to happen. Whether you are for or against the death penalty, this has been a clear and fair and honest proceeding throughout. If you don't like the result, don't attack the proceeding falsely. The McPhail family believed that Troy was responsible for Mark's murder. They were not just victimized when they lost their family member, they were also victimized each time they had to relive the murder during the lengthy, decades-long legal process. Mark's mother was interviewed in an article the day of the execution, where she said that she believed the execution would be appropriate justice for the murder of her child. Personally, I do not think that Troy killed Mark that night, and I know that the state of Georgia should have reconsidered the available evidence before going through with the execution. I think the state of Georgia got it wrong and took a case with one victim and created another by putting Troy to death without knowing with certainty that he was responsible. They had a chance to do the right thing and hold another trial to properly review the evidence, but they did not. Instead, they put a man to death based on the word of the only other man that could have been responsible. And that wraps up the show for this week. Thank you for listening. For more information on this episode, visit the website misconductpodcast.com. You'll find links to further reading on the episode and more information about misconduct. I also want to give a big thank you to Jess for her research assistance in this episode. If you want to get this episode early and ad-free, then you can check out my Patreon. If you subscribe at the $3 per month or higher level, you can listen to the episode before it is released on the regular feed. And thank you so much to all of our existing Patreon supporters. You help make the show possible. If you have a second, head on over to my social media pages and let me know what you think about this week's episode and share your thoughts and opinions with other listeners. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at MisconductPod. If you have a case that you would like to see covered, I recently added a case submission tab to my website. You can find a link to it in the show notes, and I really like taking suggestions from listeners, so if you submit a case, I will do my best to cover it on a future episode. This person spent quite a bit of time in the commission of this monstrous act. Hi, y'all. I'm Vincent, host of Gone Cold Podcast, Texas True Crime. Each week, we take a thorough look at lesser-known unsolved cases throughout the Lone Star State, hear victims' stories as told by their loved ones, and expert insight from law enforcement and medical professionals. You know, using a hatchet, that's an extremely violent and a rageful type of act. The truth is out there somewhere, and you can help us find it. You know, before I die, I want to know who did it. Please join us as we examine forgotten Texas cases. Subscribe and listen to Gone Cold Podcast, Texas True Crime, on your favorite podcatcher. There are monsters among us. How 
you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.